Good morning. It's a great privilege and joy to be here. I've been here uh, a number of times on Tuesday nights and got to know Aaron and Chad through PLI, and uh, it's just awesome to be here together with you to worship God. As Aaron mentioned, my wife Nicole and Colton and Peter and I feel uh, the call of God in our life to uh, make it our goal to plant churches among unreached peoples in places. And what that will look like for us is in August, we'll be heading down to a program called Radius International in Mexico that does specific training in this area, and then we'll be back for a few months and then head overseas uh, indefinitely, um, uh, yeah, as, as God will lead us. Uh, I'm over at Windsor Community Church, a sister church here in the Crossway Network. I work as a missions intern. God brought us there about five years ago after a really difficult season of ministry in Greeley, where we really had good intentions. I believe God led us to Greeley, and we just fell flat on our face, and God was peeling back layers and humbling us, one of the most difficult times in our lives, but a time that God used to humble us, to show us that it's about Him, not some idealistic view of ministry or community, and to really bring us to a point where we felt God saying, hey, you guys need to find a church humble yourself, submit to it, submit to be discipled, and in three to five years, reevaluate what God is leading you to do. And so I just rejoice and testify the goodness of God that here five years later, God has given us the green light and, and through the affirmation of our elders that we are uh, pursuing this call. If you uh, do want to stay in touch with us, if you want to uh, pray for us, or if God would, we don't assume anything, but if God were to give you, uh, lead you to give to us, we have a sign-up for a newsletter out on the little round table out there, and we'd be blessed if you joined us in that way. But <clears throat> I didn't come here to talk about me, I came here to talk about God's Word, and I'm sure you came here to, to hear God's Word. There's nothing more valuable and precious than God revealed through his word. So this passage in Matthew 28, if you have a Bible, um, I think you'll be helped to open to it and follow along. Um, it's been a deep comfort and encouragement to me as, as the timeline, the crunch of the timeline begins to like, the reality of what we're doing begins to set in for Nicole and I, where we're like, oh my goodness, we are moving in the middle of August. Uh, it just seems like we're, time is just screaming by. Then after Mexico, probably going somewhere crazier, you know, we have wrestled, I've wrestled with the ups and downs and the anxieties of like, is God really, like, are we crazy? Is God really leading us in this direction? And then, and then to come around and, and feel God's reaffirmation of, yes, David, this is what we're calling you to. I don't know if you can relate to that in any way of, of feeling God's call on your life and being convinced of that. And then as you take steps towards that, that, the ups and downs of like, wait, is this what he's calling us to do? But persevering in faith and then God reaffirming that. So this passage has just been a, a great encouragement to me. It's, it's first left me convinced more than ever that the church together must play a central role in seeing the gospel brought to the nations. And second, it's been a deep encouragement to us as we have taken steps towards what God has called us to do. So my goal in this sermon... My goal in this sermon is that we would exalt in the authority of Christ in such a way that it drives us towards courageous obedience to the Great Commission. So my goal as we look at this passage is that we would exalt and rejoice 
and the authority of Christ in such a way that drives us towards courageous obedience to the Great Commission. Let's read the text again. And Jesus came, verse 18 in Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, I pray you give me clarity and by your Spirit that you would open our eyes to see what you'd have for us in this passage. We're going to walk through this passage and I'm going to highlight four key truths. We're going to talk about some specific application and then if we have time, we'll look at briefly look at one example from history of someone's obedience to this call. But let's start right at the beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, who is Jesus speaking to? If you, if you look back in that passage of verse 16, we can see who he was speaking to. The 11 disciples. So Jesus here is speaking this command to the disciples together. Note that he could have spoken this to one of the disciples. Maybe he could have said, hey, Thomas, you go to the nations and make disciples. Peter, stick around. But he didn't. He said to the disciples together, this command. This wasn't an individual command. It was a corporate command. And it's not a command for one member of a church or, or a couple select members. It's a command to the church together. It's a corporate command. It's to the church together that God has given the privilege and the responsibility to see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. So does that mean that we all are called to go, to pack up and leave? No, that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that some are called to go, that some have the particular call, as Paul describes in Romans 15.20. I make it, he says, let me just read it, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So Paul had a particular call to preach the gospel in places where Jesus had not been named. So some will go, and some will send. John in 3 John paints this picture of the church supporting these brothers who were testifying of the truth. And he said, and I quote, that we might be, we ought to support them, that we might be fellow workers for the truth. So in going and in sending, we all are fellow workers of the truth. Fellow workers as we obey this commission. So Jesus speaking to them, what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this leads us to our first key truth, that Jesus has total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in the middle of suffering and death. If you can think of Jesus speaking this to the disciples, and if we can back out, I think it's helpful to think what the perspectives of the disciples might have been. We know that the disciples viewed the Messiah, the Christ coming as someone who would deliver them from Roman oppression, as someone who would come and establish the kingdom of Israel back to its glory days. And we know that this was their perspective even after the resurrection because in Acts 1-6, they asked Jesus, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So if you can imagine having that mindset, and then Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think, I think we might have been like, wait a second, you were just killed 
Like you just, like the disciple that you chose, who's been with this for years, just betrayed you. You just walked through a sham trial and a torturous death. Like all authority, sure, but what just happened? And I think that might have sounded off to them. I think it would have sounded off to me in that time because we usually associate authority with comfort and safety because that's how we use authority, right? It's the king who has the best food and the best home and makes every effort to protect himself. So the fact that Jesus Christ is claiming all authority and to have been killed and betrayed in the way that he was might have sounded and seemed contradictory particularly walking through the darkest moments here of his trial and his crucifixion and death where it seemed most likely that God would have lost his grip and authority in those moments. But God's authority was not diminished or usurped at any point in the suffering of the cross. I want to look at two examples in the events preceding this passage where we can see that clearly. One in the betrayal. If you remember, uh, and we read in, in Matthew 26 that Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus. He went to the chief priests. In exchange for what he did, they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And later we pick up the story in Matthew 27, where Judas changed his mind, went into the temple, threw the pieces of silver down. In Matthew 27, the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with it the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The exact amount of silver paid to Judas. The purchase of the potter's field was a fulfillment of prophecy given hundreds of years earlier. Again, in Matthew 27, 35, we read, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. If we look back a thousand years earlier to Matthew 22, 18, where it's prophesied that the Christ, of the Christ, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So at the moment where it seemed darkest, where it seemed most likely that God was not holding authority, at the moment where the devil was working through sinful men to crucify the King of Kings and the greatest injustice ever, in the moment that the disciple that Jesus chose that had been with them for years goes and betrays him. And the chief priests pull out the money bag and with the exact amount paid, they fulfill the prophecy of God and they do the will of God in that moment. In the deliberation of the chief priests, what do we do with this money? God reigned in total control to see the potter's field was purchased. Even as Christ was crucified, hanging on the cross in the darkest of moments, the hands that cast lots and divided his clothing were fulfilling the will of God and demonstrating that God held total authority in that moment. If we go back before Jesus died in the trial where Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus, one of the few times he speaks in that trial, in effect, says no. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So now Jesus stands before them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And Jesus now resurrected, ascended to heaven, stands, as we read in Ephesians, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And so this is where we conclude and state again our first truth that Jesus holds total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in the middle of suffering and death. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is the Great Commission. This is a foundational command given to the disciples and given to us through the Word, a foundational command to the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The key verb in this command is make disciples. We are to make disciples in our going of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them. That's the structure of this passage. So as we seek to obey this passage, we must ask, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is radically Jesus-centered. A disciple believes in Jesus for who Jesus says he is and what he has done. A disciple walks in fellowship with the person of Jesus. A disciple walks in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Jesus speaks of discipleship in Mark 8, 34 and 35, and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus required of his disciples total allegiance. So Jesus, who holds all authority, says to follow him, we must come under that authority. And Jesus said, a disciple is not greater than his master. That if they hated me, they will hate you. That we will face suffering and persecution. But in the paradox of the gospel, if we cling to our lives and seek safety, if we seek to save our life, we will lose it. But if we lay down our lives for his sake and the gospel, we will find life. We will find something, somebody who transcends, who is infinitely valuable, who transcends circumstances. And we can know in any suffering or even in death that this Jesus who is with us holds total authority. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So in the darkest moments of our life, in the moments of our life where it seems most likely that God is losing His grip on authority, we can rejoice. We can be confident in God. Why? That you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So that at the end, when the glory of God is revealed and we see clearly what we can't see clearly now, we can say, I knew it. That's why I rejoiced, because I knew God held all authority, that He was working in that moment for His good, for His glory, and for our good. Discipleship is that kind of faith-filled commitment and fellowship with the person of Jesus. And making disciples is what we are to be about as disciples. Intrinsic in the nature of being a disciple and being obedient to Jesus is to obey His command to make disciples, to bring others along in that belief. That's the main thing. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, being reconciled to God, that we are called to be ambassadors of God, pleading with others on God's behalf that they be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the reason we're here, to make disciples. 
of the ends of the earth. So we go, we make disciples. Where are we to make disciples? Of all nations. Nations here, the word is ethne. It's a, it's a word described, uh, used to describe a group of people who share a common culture in language, or, or a people group, if you've heard that term. In this verse, we're commanded to make disciples of all nations, or, or people groups, or in Mark 16, all the world, or in Acts 1, to the ends of the earth. Why did Jesus give such explicit direction in this command in regards to the extent of this call? I think it's because he knew it would take specific intentionality to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That Jesus here is explicitly commanding us to, to make disciples to the extent of the ends of the earth, to the extent of all nations, because it will, it will require intentionality and perseverance to see that accomplished. Let me give you an, an illustration here that I will, that I believe will help us understand the, the thrust of this passage. If in your job, if you're a manager of various stores, your, your uh, management came to you and said, I want you to establish stores in every state in the U.S. It would be a right interpretation of that directive to focus then on states that don't have stores, to focus on states that don't have stores, to establish new locations there. And I think it's a right interpretation of the Great Commission to say that we need to go and make disciples, especially where disciples aren't being made, especially among nations where disciples are not being made yet. And this leads us to our second truth, that Jesus, holding all authority, has commanded the church to make disciples specifically among the unreached. Whoa, 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 David. Back up there. This, this, you should be asking the question, is that really right? Is it right to say that we ought to, from this passage, emphasize the unreached? Or to say specifically the unreached? <clears throat> I believe so. And let me give three reasons. Reason number one, the call to bring the gospel to all peoples echoes throughout Scripture. We see in God's promise and covenant to Abraham that through his offspring, which Paul specifically says is a reference to Jesus, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We read in the Psalms again and again language like this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We see in the prophets God's jealousy that His name be known as great among the nations. Again and again, statements like, then they will know that I am the Lord. We see in the New Testament, as Paul goes out with a desire to proclaim the gospel where Jesus is not named, we see in Revelation 7, in the throne room where every nation, of people of all tribes and peoples and languages come around the throne saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we see specifically in this passage where we're commanded by Jesus to make disciples. The context is this, of this passage is that except for people who had some interaction with Jesus, the world was unreached. And Christ was commanding his disciples to take the gospel to the unreached world and make disciples. 
So is it right to emphasize the unreached? I believe so. Number one, reason number one, the call to bring the gospel to all nations, the call for all peoples to worship God echoes throughout Scripture. Reason number two, there is still great need among unreached peoples. What do I mean by unreached? One pastor describes it in this way. Unreached peoples and places are those among whom Christ is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known in its broader population without outside help. So one, Christ is largely unknown among the people. Two, the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known, to make disciples among those peoples, among this people, without outside help. So unreached peoples are those groups where there's need for someone to cross into that group, to learn the culture and the language for that group to be effectively reached with the gospel. Commonly, this is defined as those who are less than 2% evangelical and less than 5% professing Christian. It's important to note here, none of these classifications are strictly biblical, but the classifications can be helpful as we seek to obey the commands of Christ. So what population of the world is unreached? 42%. 3.24 billion people are unreached, near half the world population. And if you go beyond unreached to a classification called frontier people groups, so instead of 2%, less than 0.1% evangelical and no known gospel movement. So these are, these are peoples where there may be a handful of believers, but there's no disciples making disciples, churches planting churches as far as we know. 24.8% of the world population. One in four falls into that category. As an example of the Sikh people, 234 million people across India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, 100% Muslim, 0% evangelical, no known gospel movement among those people. It's people like this, that unless someone crosses a barrier, a cultural linguistic barrier, these people will not have access to the gospel. It's areas like Afghanistan where you're more likely to be struck by lightning here in Colorado than to even meet a Christian there, not nonetheless hear the gospel. 24.8% staggering to me. So is it right to emphasize the unreached? Reason number two is that there's still staggering need among unreached peoples. Reason number three, there's great disparity in resources being committed to reach unreached peoples. Out of every 100 missionaries sent, four go to the unreached. Out of every 100 missionaries sent, one goes to frontier peoples. Out of every $100 given to missions, not ministry, given to missions, $1 goes to ministry among the unreached. Let me just say here that local ministry is totally necessary. It is biblical to strengthen disciples, to reach the lost here, to strengthen the church. Local ministry is biblical and totally necessary. But as one preacher said, global ministry is tragically neglected. Is it right to emphasize unreached, the unreached? <clears throat> Reason number three, there's great disparity of resources being committed to make disciples among the unreached. So we emphasize the unreached because we see in the Bible the heart of God that all peoples worship Him, echo throughout Scripture. We see that there still exists great need among the unreached, and we see that there's, a dispro there's disproportionate resources being committed to meet that need. So for these reasons, we say... That key truth again, that Jesus holding all authority has called the church to make disciples, especially among the unreached.
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We think here that Jesus is calling us to go and make disciples. And we think of a disciple in the terms of what we just talked about the definition of disciple is. The kind of disciple that Jesus describes of total allegiance to Him. That we're to make disciples, we ought to feel very inadequate. <laughs> this is an impossible task. Like Nicodemus, we should ask, how can a man be born again? But how can we, how can we make disciples? Well, Jesus in this passage says we make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. And this will lead us to our third key truth, that Jesus in His authority mightily saves us and offers this salvation to the world. So verse 19, second half, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why baptizing? Why did Jesus use baptism here? I believe it's because baptism presents a full picture of the Gospel. It functions as a final public step in obedience of our conversion from the world to Christ. Baptism is an outward symbol of beginning life in faith in Jesus Christ and joining God's family. It's an identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. It's symbolic of the new birth. And what is this new birth? It's that we've been justified and forgiven. It's that because of our sin, because we've not honored God, as we should, that we deserve shame. We deserve that the wrath of God rests upon us. But in the good news, Jesus gives us complete forgiveness, that He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. But the Gospel doesn't just stop with forgiveness. We're made new, and we're united with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 where we read that in this prophecy that God will give us a new heart and a new spirit. There's a fundamental change that happens as we place our faith in Jesus. And we're not just forgiven, but we're made new. And the core of our identity is now defined by the Spirit of God who lives within us and the fact that we are united with God in this life. Paul says, in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So Jesus in His authority, the third truth, has mightily saved us. And He offers this salvation to the world. To this point, in making disciples, we baptize them and, verse 20, we teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what, did, what has Jesus commanded? Well, He's commanded... Namely, that we repent and believe the Gospel, that we come to Him. But He's also commanded us how we ought to live as His disciples. Note here, He says, all that I have commanded you. So it's not just the commands that are explicitly in regards to the Gospel, but it's the commands where Jesus lifts a standard of righteousness. No longer is it you shall not commit adultery, but you shall not look upon another with lustful intent. Jesus raises the bar from the Torah, and He shows us in a majestic way what it looks like to love God and love others. Note again from this text that we're not just to teach them the commands, but we're to teach them to observe all the commands. Which again should point us towards our inadequacy and at the same time point us to the truth that Jesus has mightily saved us. And He offers this salvation to the world. And this salvation includes the grace of God, the Spirit of God living within us. And as we grow 
and repentance and belief and living in faith in Jesus that we can grow in obedience, in meaningful obedience to the commands of Christ. As Romans 8, 4 says, in which we read that God sent Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Gospel is effective. It is powerful. It is in fact the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And there is hope in this life of the Gospel working real and meaningful life change and triumph over enslaving sin in this life as we grow in belief and repentance in Jesus. And the power of that lies in the fact that He is with us. As we read in, in the closing of this passage, that behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He's with us. He has all authority. His Gospel is powerful and effective and armed with that truth. We're commissioned to go and make disciples with Him to the ends of the earth. What more can we ask that we get to be with Him, to, to walk in fellowship with God who holds all authority, who's gone before us, who understands our temptations, who understands what it's like to walk through suffering, who understands what it's like to walk in obedience to the point of death. The one who's now given us the privilege of all privileges to see the gospel proclaimed, to see light shine, shown in darkness. He's not distant. His presence is not limited by time. It's not limited by suffering. He is not powerless. He is not unavailable. As we read in Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And here we have our fourth and final truth, that Jesus, who's reigning in all things, promises to be with us to the end of the age. I don't know of a better passage that encapsulates these truths than Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Jumping down to verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let us exalt in Jesus who has total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in suffering and even in death. And let us exalt in Jesus who has mightily saved us and who offers this salvation to the world. And let us exalt in Jesus who's promised to be with us even to the end of the age. And let us be stirred by that to courageously Obey Jesus who commands us to give ourselves to making disciples of all nations. The application I want to bring in this passage, you might be surprised, it's not me asking you all to move to India or to empty your checkbooks. <clears throat> it's actually more radical than that. You know, I think people, as they, as they hear what we're planning to do, are like, oh, that's radical. But the call of this text and the call of the Gospel is more radical than that. It's a call to come under the authority of Jesus. It's a call of total allegiance to Him. It's a call that we all, at the, 
at the foot of the cross, open our hands and say, Jesus, what would you have me do in obedience to this text? Would Jesus be leading you to go? Billions await to hear the gospel. This is a command that he's given us to make disciples of all nations, and it's yet to be completed. Unreached peoples often exist in difficult places that are difficult to access, and it's difficult work to persevere in. There's great need for those who will go, who will prepare well, for churches who will train up people to send them to go. Paul says in Romans 10, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Some of you here today may have never even thought of the possibility of you going. The specific application I have for you is just to open your hands and say, God, if you were to call me to go, I'm willing. Some of you might have felt the call or might be convinced of God's call that he is calling you to go. Will you talk to your elders here and bring that to them? Some will go, some will send. William Carey, before he went to India in 1793, famously said, I will go down if you hold the ropes. This is not an individual commission. This is a commission for the church and the church together to see this through. It's not without opposition that this task will be completed and those who go will require the spiritual and emotional and financial support of the church. Will you pray? Will you pray that God will raise up laborers for the harvest? Raise up those who will go to the unreached. Will you pray for those you have sent out? Maybe organize a night of prayer for those that you are supporting. Will you pray for unreached peoples? Will you give? John in 3 John 5-8 through says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Again, I'm not saying this assuming that you would support me. I'm saying this as a general concept of we must lay our resources before God and say, how can we invest? How can we obey the command of Christ together as the body of Christ to see the nations reached with the gospel? We have been given a great privilege, the greatest privilege to see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. I don't know of anything more exciting than that. And I pray that God will raise up workers, senders, and goers from this church to see that task completed. So in closing, I want to briefly look at it. one of the workers God raised up years ago, John Patton. Born in 1824 in Scotland, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands where he was sent. Um, the two missionaries before him were killed on the beach. How would you like that to be your church planning assignment? <laughs> he went through deep uh, trials, sickness and danger. Yet he had an unshaken confidence in the authority of Christ. Listen to what he says in the autobiography as people were surrounding him. Locals were surrounding him, wishing to kill him. They encircled us in a deadly ring. One kept urging another to strike the first blow and fire the first shot. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus and I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God and I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. John Patton would uh, end up seeing incredible fruit 
in his life, but not without deep suffering. He, he lost his first wife and child to disease. Some of his fellow workers on the island were killed. Others were driven off the island. And yet, at the end of his life, he, he wrote <clears throat> these words. I probably have had my full share of abuse from the enemies of the cross, and not with inconsiderable burden of trials and inflictions in the service of my Lord. Yet here, as I lay down my pen, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent, and that if God gave back my life to be lived over again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it on the altar of Christ, that he may use it, as before, in similar ministries of love especially among those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. Nothing has been endured. Nothing that can now befall me makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice when I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field, and that he may open up their way to make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel to the heart of the heathen world. God gave his best, his son to me, and I give my best my all to him. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And we will not be fools. You will not be fools here to give yourselves with abandon as senders and goers to the one who gave his best, his all for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this rich passage that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords above all authorities. That you hold all authorities, even in suffering, even in death, and that you commission us to go. You've given us such a privilege. And I pray that we would boldly obey, that we would this morning lay ourselves again before you, recognizing you hold all authority. And just with open hands ask God, how would you have me obey whether in going or sending, to see the gospel brought to peoples and places uh, who are unreached. I pray this in your name. Amen.